everyone. You're listening to Code Switch. I'm B.A. Parker. So my family comes from a plantation called Somerset Place. It's a site that I go past every summer because my family still has a farm nearby. They're both in a town called Cresswell, North Carolina. The town's small, about 207 people, and a lot of them are descendants of Somerset. My whole life, I've gone to Cresswell, but I've never had to really engage with the Somerset plantation. It wasn't intentional. It's just that you really had to want to go, and who wants to go to a plantation? Growing up, my family's home in Cresswell felt like my link to my ancestors. I didn't really need the plantation. Plus, my mom has always been there, instilling our family's history into me. Well, we were told that we are descendants of the original 13. There were the 13 um, enslaved that came to Somerset. Somerset. Yeah, okay. Here, I can tell you who my great-great-great-grandmother was, and I think that that's the one thing Somerset taught me, the importance of knowing your ancestry. Because, you know, most white people know. They can trace all the way to the Mayflower. Mayflower, Daughters of the Revolution. But a lot of times, black families can't do that. I am one of those descendants who knows a respectable amount about her family history. But not an encyclopedic amount like the women who came before like my mom and her mom, my grandma Doris. So grandma's mom. Isabella. Oh, Mabel. Yes. Okay. Wait, Mabel is grandma Lucille's mother. Yes. Hi, look at me. All right. Mabel was born on the plantation at Somerset. She's now buried at the family church, same as my great-grandmother and my grandmother. Mabel didn't have a marker for a grave. And um, Mommy and her siblings, the 10 of them put together and bought Isabella a headstone. Yeah, I remember seeing, because it's like like circular and white. Grandma and Aunt Louise would, would clean it every August. So that's what my grandmother did for the people that came before her. But it has me wondering... How am I supposed to maintain the legacy of my ancestors? I got invited to an event in Washington, D.C. I didn't fully understand what it was about, aside from the invitation saying they wanted, quote, descendants of slavery who are stakeholders of culturally significant historic places, end quote. It was a symposium at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. They called it the Descendants Community's Social Innovation Lab. In short, they wanted African-American descendants of sites of enslavement to sit together and talk out our ancestry and see what happens. Immediately, I invited my mom. I mean, I wanted you to come with me because you have all this knowledge that I don't have. But I feel like also you absorbed a lot of it from being around grandma and all her sisters and brothers and granddaddy and his siblings and you just have it it's just memories we knew that there would be at least two other people from somerset place in attendance but that was about it 
just three days inside of the Blacksonian with free lunch vouchers and looming discussions about intergenerational trauma. I really don't know what we're supposed to be doing. Well, it's an adventure. We can tell what we know and they'll tell us what they know. And you like talking to people about this kind of stuff. I'm looking forward to it. All right. You'll see the Oprah Winfrey Theater down there. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome, and Thank you. This place is huge. Do you remember this place being this huge? Yes. There were hundreds of people there, descendants of Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, of James Madison's Montpelier, of the Shadows Plantation in Louisiana, places I'd never even heard of. And there was a libation ceremony pouring out water for the dead. There were silent prayers to our ancestors. Calling some ancestors into the room. The goal was to find connections. We all wanted the same things, to honor our ancestors and preserve their legacies the best way we know how. But it was when a poet named Damaris B. Hill came onto the stage that the sentiment of the event started to fall into place for us. I'm gonna start with a poem from my grandmother. Harriet Beecher Sproul Hill. She was actually um, named by her mother after Harriet Beecher Stowe. Damaris's grandmother I'm was named after the famed after author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And what does it mean to be named after a woman that was named after a woman that Abraham Lincoln said wrote the book that started the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And it was during this tidbit in Damaris' introduction that my mom nudged me. Really you know this lady's grandmother? Yes, I know her grandmother well. Her children. In the midst of this communion, we'd found actual family. A distant cousin. Okay, you're a school. Your father, McKinley Hill. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I'm a descendant of Somerset. Okay. Oh that is so That's crazy. Powerful. Yes, I know Lily. We stood around the museum comparing relatives. Who was retired, who lived where, who was still alive. Damaris, my mom, and I had this strange task of representing a plantation's legacy in the basement of this sprawling museum about Black history. A larger conversation that was happening at the symposium was about cemetery preservation. Just being able to place and commemorate the graves of ancestors in the United States. An incalculable amount of black cemeteries have been bulldozed, desecrated, or unmarked. Cruel casualties of slavery and structural racism. African-American burial grounds have no protections. In fact, in 2020, the Senate passed the African-American Burial Grounds Study Act in hopes to identify and preserve Black historical cemeteries. But it stalled in the House. So the onus is sort of on the individual, the descendant who sees the problem and is determined to be the solution. Margot Williams is one of those descendants doing the work. Her ancestors are buried in Olivewood Cemetery. It's the oldest Black cemetery in Houston, Texas. Here is a rake, here is a hoe, here is a shovel. Come on out. Margot founded the Descendants of Olivewood over 20 years ago to take care of the cemetery and protect her ancestors in it. Come on out, 
come on out, put your hands to the plow and come on out. Another challenge Margot's facing in trying to preserve the cemetery is climate change. We have a big erosion problem. Every time those 500-year rains or floods come through, that are coming through every, every four months in Texas, our graves are being washed away. Because of rising sea levels in North Carolina, even I have to wear galoshes to put flowers on my grandfather's grave. The ground around him and his family is now total mush. My mom is concerned that I'm one of the few in my generation that's still visiting our family's graves. So the question now is, who is going to bring flowers further down the line? What young person is going to care? I'll do this the rest of my life. It's been imprinted that if, if we don't do this, no one else will do it. That's Bhakti Williams-Brown. He's 23. During our lunch break, I sat down with him and his mother, Rachel Williams. They hail from Buffalo, New York, but once a month, they trek to the Lincoln Cemetery in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's the resting place for Rachel and Bakhti's ancestors. How long is the trip from Buffalo to Harrisburg? It's a five-hour drive if there's no snow. In the past year, Rachel, Bakhti, and all of his younger siblings have learned stone masonry repair to fix some of the neglected graves. And they've digitized all of Lincoln Cemetery's burial records. Small steps to introduce the site into the 21st century. That cemetery is our family's, well, at least how we found it, was our family's last remaining piece of history, truly, and connect like wealth of connections. And without that, we would have no way to understand where we are in the world or who we are. So I can't stop because then I have no, I don't know who I am. But Bhakti is thinking about what's going to get other people from his generation to care about these burial grounds. What does a successfully preserved space look like? Like, what does that mean? Do we know what that means? And I really mean that open-ended. Like, how colorful will these cemeteries be? How inviting, how peaceful, how open will they be? Like, I have so many questions because, I mean, I really feel like to engage a space now is going to take such a different approach than maybe what we've seen before. So Bhakti was bursting with all of these ideas and questions. I mean, when I met him, he was wearing a poncho and those running shoes with individual toes in them. So I expected him to be thinking outside the box. Do you have ideas percolating? Yeah, we've, we've, had, we've started things that are a little interesting. Minecraft. Like a Minecraft cemetery? For the, for the youth? Building the, mine, the cemetery in Minecraft. I know. It's interesting. It's a little... It was difficult. So you're basically, you're designing this, the physical cemetery inside Minecraft. Yo! Yeah, make it a center, right? So Bhakti wants to meet people where they are in Minecraft and bring them into the past. But for Anthony A.M. Andrade, they chose to go into the past and pull it into the present. So I'd love to offer some breaths for us to um, engage in today before we get into our panel discussion. Um, so a breath for this land, um, the, the wisdom of indigenous people that have been on this land since before this building arrived, since before colonization. Deep breath in. 
And um, AM is a visual and performance artist and a member of the House of Glitter Dance Company in Rhode Island. And in 2022, AM and the House of Glitter did something a little radical. They held a residency in the former home of Isaac Hopkins. Hopkins was an 18th century naval officer who commanded a slavery ship called Sally. With that ship, Isaac Hopkins abducted 196 Africans. But at least 109 died on the trip through disease, starvation, failed insurrection, or suicide. Isaac Hopkins is still commemorated across Providence in public memorials, though that's something the House of Glitter is trying to change. We created um, what's called an activist dance opera, um, and this centers the, the story of one particular woman who hanged herself on the first voyage of the slavery ship Sally. The historical fantasy of Isaac Hopkins was an activist dance opera and a moment for catharsis, retelling the overlooked stories from inside the ship called Sally. It was a colorful, meditative fantasia. I was surrounded by all of these people who had figured out how to honor their ancestors to the absolute best of their abilities, from Minecraft to dance operas to cleaning up cemeteries. But for me, this weekend kickstarted an existential crisis I wasn't prepared for. That question of how I could be a good descendant plagued me. But apparently not for my mom. I appreciate being here this weekend. This this has really been a treat for me. And I learned a lot. So far in my family, the knowledge and responsibility of honoring our ancestors had been in the hands of my mom and the generations before. But now, it ultimately falls on me. So I am one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight generations from Somerset. And that's something. That's something. I think it's kind of comforting to, I don't know, trace it mm-hmm. and be able to pinpoint and know who you are, where you come from. Mm-hmm. After the symposium, I started thinking about other descendants of Somerset Place. I wanted to talk to them, see if they felt the same kind of duty. Are you a descendant of Somerset? Yes, ma'am. Oh, howdy, cousin. (laughs) This is Mina Wilson. And Mina's not my actual cousin. Not technically. She's what some at the conference called landkin. So if you're not, like, physically related because of, you know, slavery, we still have this connection point. So even if we aren't cousins, like, you and I would be landkin. I like that. Me too. I was like, oh, I told my mom today. I was like, mom, I'm going to go talk to our landkin today. Mina's the executive director of a program in Berkeley, California, called Healthy Black Families. And she's the descendant of Kofi and Sally, two of the original enslaved at Somerset. Those are my ancestors who were kidnapped from the continent and put on a ship called the Camden um, by Josiah Collins Mm -hmm. and um, navigated the Middle Passage to arrive at Somerset. And my Sally... At the time, 
she was taken, I understand she was nine years old. And when she finally got to Somerset, they document her as 11 years old. I'd heard about Mina in the local Crestwell News. She'd made it into the paper when she decided to go back to where it all began for both of us. Somerset, please. It's always a very spiritual experience to be on the plantation for me at Somerset. Mm -hmm. So much so that the first time I was leaving, I was walking away. And I kept feeling like something pulling me, you know, from behind. And I turned around and I looked and there those tall cypress trees on the sound. Mm -hmm. And it was like I saw them. Like the energy of them between the trees. And they were so grateful. And they thanked me, like, thank you for taking the time to come. Thank you for acknowledging that we are important, right? So I, I love going there for that feeling. It connects me to myself in a way that nothing else does. Yeah. Now, my children mm-hmm. thought I was absolutely crazy for planning a family reunion at a place where our folks were enslaved. Well, why did they think it was crazy? Um, they were just like... Why do you want to go back there? Why would you want to, like, have a family event there? I mean, it it just didn't click for them that it was a way to connect with the generations of ourselves in a way that was really meaningful. They're just thinking, like, why do we want to go to plantation? But to be fair... Her kids kind of had a bigger concern than the family reunion. So how did the opportunity to sleep in a slave cabin come about? I got an eloquently crafted email about doing an overnight stay. Mm -hmm. It's part of the Slave Dwelling Projects program offerings. Coming up, we hear about how sleeping where her ancestors slept went for Mina. I'm curious what your children thought. Well, they were not partaking. They're like, Uh y'all can do that. We're cool. (laughs) We're going back to the hotel. We are not sleeping in slave cabins. Stay with us. Parker, just Parker, code switch. So I've been trying to figure out how to be a good descendant, how to honor my enslaved ancestors' legacies. And I met my landkin, Mina Wilson, who was doing the same kind of work. She was telling me about how she was going to host a family reunion at Somerset Plantation, where both of our ancestors were enslaved. But Mina wasn't just reuniting with her living family. She was hoping to visit with those who'd passed. She was introduced to the Slave Dwelling Project. They set it up so that descendants of the enslaved of these plantations can sleep where their ancestors slept. And it's gotten a lot of traction. They eat meals from that time, some dress of that time. Some who slept there have infamously worn chains to bid, which was considered a bridge too far by some of the participants. What were your initial thoughts when that particular opportunity was brought to you to to sleep in the in the slave quarters? Because I'm curious also what your children thought. Well, they were not partaking. They're like, uh-huh. y'all can do that. We're cool. <laughs> We're going back to the hotel. We are not sleeping in slave cabins. Well, the first time I took my son there, he had an experience, a spiritual experience on the steps of the infirmary. 
where he mm-hmm. felt spirits around him. And that was enough for him. He's like, eh, I'm cool, mom. But not being afraid to journey through that, I was really excited about the opportunity. My biggest um, hesitancy was the logistics, like, you know, sleeping on the floor in a sleeping bag is really not my idea of a good night's sleep, but Fair. it wasn't really for that. It wasn't an overnight stay to get a restful night's sleep. It was an overnight stay to really immerse ourselves in the experience, right? That night, Mina and two of her sisters attended a bonfire with the Slave Dwelling Project and with tour guides. And then they were off to sleep in the infirmary. It was a two-level structure. We were on the first level. Mm -hmm. We didn't traverse the stairs going up. Um, Then there was a room that kind of was staged like a normal home would be for us, enslaved family. Mm -hmm. Um, Single bunks, thin mattresses, wooden chairs, and all of the fire... There's a fireplace and fireplace artifacts. And then as you continue down the hall, there was a door to the right, and it was just an open room, which is probably where ill slaves received medical treatment. And we slept on the floor there on air mattresses. What were you and your sister's first thoughts when you came into that room that that evening? I mean, you can see outside through the side of the through the slats. So it's oh. it's a it's a rudely crafted structure. And then it was summertime, so it wasn't cold, but you wonder like what did people do when it got really cold? To sleep in a room that perhaps housed your enslaved ancestor is a heavy thing. But in the moment, there was something else keeping her up. I tried my best not to, like, drink a lot of water before going to bed because the bathroom facilities were down the steps, out the door, across tall grass, and over there to the right. Right? At night? Yes, ma'am. So as hard as we tried, I think I went to the bathroom more that night than ever. And my sisters. Why? And so, you know, we're, like, hoisting our middle-aged bodies off the floor and, you know, putting on shoes. And, you know, then we walk down the steps and across the gravel and through this tall grass and into the, you know, the bathroom at the facilities and, you know. Was it like an outhouse? Well, it's the bathroom on the park grounds. Oh. mm -mm. Right? Yeah. And so the third time we crossed the grass and got in the bathroom, we kind of looked at each other's and we started cracking up. And I said, Sally and Kofi, we ain't. Right? Because <laughs> this is like a lot. And this was, this is only one night we have to go through this. They did this every day. And they were walking out to a bathroom. Right? Yeah. So it just really built a huge measure of appreciation for the resilience of our ancestors, you know, that was really tangible for us. So the next morning they made breakfast for us and this tour guides were there. And so we went back to the infirmary to gather our, you know, overnight suitcases and all of that. And there was just this energy that, you know, we're just going to hop in the car and go, but there was this energy like we didn't want to leave. Really? And it wasn't like a, 
oh, I don't feel like driving home or anything like that. It was like this connection that we were having to sever to walk away because we had been so intimately immersed in the experience. So kind of organically, we just gathered in a circle and held hands Mm -hmm. and we started this circle of prayer. Um, And everyone said their piece, you know, and tears started to flow. And I remember my brother's prayer the most, I think, because I haven't often seen my brother show deep emotion. Mm -hmm. But by the time he finished praying and thanking the ancestors for their resilience and their vision and their commitment to being excellent and even in the midst of, you know, all that they were oppressed by, like he had tears rolling down his face. And um, once we did that, you know, and paid that kind of homage, I think we felt free to go. It's like they released us, like, you can go. (laughs) It's a memory that I'll always keep. It was really, really powerful. And it was just, you know, like I said, most of the family didn't opt in for the overnight stay. So a a very select few of us that share that experience together. And that's something you'll have forever. Yeah. And it's not and it's not just then, it's the gift that keeps giving. How so? Um, it makes me walk in the world in a different way to know myself like that. Yeah. It makes me speak with clarity and confidence to know myself like that. So I'm thankful to be connected to what I know of myself this way because it informs and shapes the way I walk in the world. So much of my life has been learning about who I am from my mom, from my grandparents, and from this spot in the world of of Cresswell and Somerset. And... It's not a burden. It's not that. I do feel, I feel like it's a, like, like a duty to represent my family, to honor my family. My mom and I were going to go tour Somerset because I haven't been there since, I think, like 2008, 2009. Like, it's been a long time. And I am curious if there is anything I should pay attention to that you think is overlooked or anything I should prepare myself for as an adult in that space? So I want to bring forth first, you say it's a duty, right? It's a responsibility. And it is that. It is. But it's also an opportunity. And it's an opportunity that not many African Americans have. I would say not the majority of us can trace our lineage back to the place where our enslaved ancestors were. Yeah. So I look at it through both lenses. And as I take advantage of the opportunity, 
I also understand that what I learn and come to understand is not just for myself. Mm-hmm. Then I can come back to communities and share what I know because it's not very distant than the realities for others. It's just that they don't have that connection to their lineage in the way that I do. This is a bigger question. What do you expect from my generation or from your, your children's generation when it comes to honoring? Mm, that is a bigger question. Um, I try to, to the best of my ability, walk my journey without expectations. Hmm. Because while they hold a standard, they also limit possibility. And I, I think the standard is important, but I also think giving you all an opportunity to emerge your own way of doing this is really important because the world you'll live in is not the world I've lived in. And it's a, that world will need some of the historical grounding, but it'll need a new thing too. So what I try to bring to you all is the truth of our history, hoping that you'll take it and be inspired by it to do what you're called to do with it. Hmm. But I think you would be remiss not to grab it and hold on to it as part of the way you grow into being self in the world. I think it's vital to not only your reality, but also to your humanity. Golly, Miss Wilson. Uh. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're talking about something that means a lot to me. It feels like Mina has had this kind of spiritual awakening, but I'm part of the first generation in my family that's always known this history of Somerset. And because of that, maybe I don't appreciate it as much as I should. It isn't an awakening for me. I mean, Mina feels it, but I don't feel it. Is that bad? I I don't know. I'm still figuring out my role. I talked to my mom about what that role could be, what responsibility I have to maintain our family's legacy. I think... I think we do it as a family, you know... For the most part, we all try to gather that third Saturday in August. Um, We all try to come down there so that we can be together. And and I think that's a way of honoring. And we try to make sure that there's flowers on the graves of our loved ones. So that's all you can do. There you go. Our our greatest fear is that your generation, your generation doesn't want to be there. Uh-huh. 
And I think that they need to come and see Somerset. I think that they need to stand on the same grounds that their ancestors did. Uh, You know what I'm saying? I got you. Yeah. On the next episode, my mom and I go back to Somerset Place. We take a road trip. Do you think it's accurate if you put your arm out and you do the bump bump that the truck will do? Bump bump. Do you think that ever happens? I've always wanted to do it. And that's our show. You can follow us on Instagram at NPR Code Switch. If email is more your thing, ours is codeswitch at npr.org. And subscribe to the podcast on the NPR app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to our Code Switch Plus listeners. We appreciate you and thank you for being a subscriber. Subscribing to Code Switch Plus means getting to listen to all of our episodes without any sponsor breaks. It also helps support our show. So if you love our work, please consider signing up at plus.npr.org slash codeswitch. This episode was produced by Jess Kung, Christina Kala, and me. It was edited by Courtney Stein. Our engineer is Josephine Neonai. And a big shout out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive. Leah Danella, Lori Lizaraga, Jean Demby, Steve Drummond, Dahlia Mortada, and Rylan Williams. Our art director is L.A. Johnson. Special thanks to Elon Cookley, Hannah Scruggs, Michelle Lanier, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and the National Museum of African American History and Culture. I'm B.A. Parker. Hydrate. Hydrate.